Deuteronomy 12. These are the statutes and rules that you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest, from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or of any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat wherever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, 
then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings which you shall take, and you shall go to the place the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods." Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, would you, uh, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And we pray now that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would attend unto us by your spirit, that we would see wonderful things from your law, and that you would draw us to see Jesus in his goodness and his grace and his glory, and be drawn to worship and adore and love him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're jumping back into Deuteronomy, as you obviously know, and we're going to be spending the next 12 weeks in these chapters of 12 through 26, and I just have to imagine that some of you, even as this text was being read, might be feeling a sense of, oh, like, why are we doing this? Um, why spend time looking at these laws? Doesn't the New Testament say that we're not under the law don't, aren't these laws speaking very specifically about things that Israel is to do as, as they come into the land? And given that this is not our situation, what relevance does this have? Um, to paraphrase Old Testament scholar Gordon McConville, what Deuteronomy is doing is Deuteronomy develops a vision of life by its laws and its instructions that's meant to teach and direct us in the way of love. It's not obscure, it's not an ancient code of regulations, do this, don't do that, but it's instruction meant to teach us in the way of love. 
That's why we're going to be looking at this. And when we think about love, if we think especially about particular situations, particular people, the concrete realities of daily life, we recognize, I think, that love is hard. Love in general is maybe easy, but to love in a specific situation, to love people, to love in a way that is intelligent and helpful, to love in a way that brings flourishing to a community is incredibly difficult. And that's why these laws in Deuteronomy chapter 12 through 26 are so helpful and why we're going to spend some time thinking about them, not because they give us the exact way that we are to go out and do love, um, None of you are going to leave here today and go look for Asherah poles to chop down and destroy. It's useful because as we look at the way God told Israel to love at this time, it directs us and points us to this life, this way of wisdom and love that Jesus calls us to walk in. The value of these chapters is that they point us to concrete and specific ways that love is expressed in the life of the community. And they do this, this I just kind of want to orient us to what's going on in this larger section first, and then we're going to jump into chapter 12. They do this uh, in a way that numerous scholars have pointed out, that it roughly like follows and teases out the Ten Commandments. So if you were to look at these chapters, 12 through 26, you would see how they kind of roughly follow the Ten Commandments. So chapter 12 and 13, we're looking at 12 this week, 13 next week. They roughly follow commandments one through three. No other gods, no idols, and honoring God's name. When you get to chapter 14 through the first half of 16, there's different things about like the rhythms of Israel's life. And you could think of the fourth commandment and the Sabbath. When you get to the second half of 16 into 18, you see laws about respect for legitimate authority in Israel's community. And you could think of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, so, and so on. I won't go through all of it, but that's kind of what Deuteronomy is doing. So let's turn to our text. Turning to our text. Because this instruction is meant to educate people in the way of love, it begins with worship which is to say it begins with how we are meant to center our lives on God, knowing and receiving His love and loving Him. So let's look at this text, and we're going to consider the way of true worship, and I want us to ask two questions this morning. First, how is this way different from other kinds of worship or spirituality or religious belief and expression. And second, how is this way meant to transform our lives? So we're going to spend most of our time on the first question, but then we'll, we'll consider a few things briefly from the second. So the way of true worship, how is this way different from other ways? If you look at the text, uh, the opening section, verses 1 through 7, and then if you look at the final section, verses 29 through 31, you'll notice this contrast, not like this, not this way, not like the nations, not their way, but in the way that God will show, in the way that God chooses. And here, I would say we see the fundamental difference between these two ways. The way of true worship is the way of a loving relationship with a person with God. And this way is in direct conflict with the way of worship or spirituality or religion 
that is about control. Look at the opening verses. You see various things related to the worship of the ancient Near Eastern people. Various places of worship, verse 2, sacred areas, high mountains, hills, green trees. You see objects that were used in their ritual worship, verse 3, altars, pillars, asherim poles, carved images of their gods. So let's just take carved images for an, ex- for an example. It's not that ancient people thought that this wooden object is literally the deity, What they believed is that the gods are in the heavens, in in the spiritual realm, but that this this, uh, idol represents the deity, that the god is near through the deity, and the image is a way to channel and collect the power of the deity. So one way you could think about it, one way an an author put it, I thought it was very helpful, you think, think about electricity. High voltage is dangerous, and so too is divine power. High voltage is fatal if you cannot control it. And in the same way, the image of the deity functions like a transformer, that it takes this dangerous power and it channels it and it uses it for great benefit to the person that can use it and manipulate it. The way of this kind of worship is not about relationship at all. In fact, as I was trying to think back and remember a class I took on the ancient Near East and their religions, I could be wrong and someone could point it out to me, but I don't remember ever reading a text where the God longed to have an intimate and personal and close relationship with anyone. The God just wanted stuff and the people did the stuff and the God gave them stuff in return. This way of worship is not about relationship, it's about manipulation. It's I do this ritual, I do this thing so that the God or the gods or the spiritual realm will respond and give me what I want. It's about maintaining control. It's about using the gods, tapping into the power of the spiritual for the things that I want in my life. And in this way, this way of worship is not really that different from the way many people in the modern world practice spirituality. Perhaps you're here and you're a person who doesn't believe in God or the spiritual at all of any sort. You still have to center your life around something. You still worship. You still give yourself to something that you look to to give you meaning and purpose and a sense of worth and value. And whatever that is, in a sense, you are kind of in control of it. You determine what it is. You judge whether or not you are winning or succeeding at it. You construct your life around the values and and what it means to live for this thing. You are in control. The vast majority of people, however, though, do believe in at least some kind of God or higher power or something like that. They they want a connection with the spiritual. And uh, Tara Isabella Burton, she writes about this phenomena of American spirituality, belief, and religious practice in this book, Strange Rites, R-I-T-E-S, Rites. The vast majority of us still believe in some divine power, higher power, spiritual realm, and we want to tap into it. We want to harness it to improve our lives. But the way that we seek to do this often is through the authority of the self. So, uh, Burton, uh, Tara Burton writes this, 
more and more people hunger for a spiritual identity and a surrounding community that precisely reflects their values, their moral and social institutions, their lived experience, and their sense of self. More and more of us, even among the religiously affiliated, are religious hybrids, willing to incorporate non-Western or New Age spiritual traditions or sources of spiritual energy or regular meditative rituals within our spiritual diets. We want to connect. People want to connect spiritually, but on our own terms. We want to be in control. And this is the problem that we and the Israelites and the ancient people share because if this chapter emphasizes one central idea, it is that the way of true worship, verse 8, is not whatever is what is right in your own eyes. It's not the way you choose. It's not according to what you like or you don't like. It's not what fits your preferences. It's not what fits what you already believe. Rather, the way you are to worship is the way that God chooses. You are to worship in the place that He chooses. Look, look at the text. Verse 4. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. Verse 11, the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Verse 13, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose. And it's repeated again in verse 18, verse 21, verse 26. Why? Why does it matter where and, and how I worship? It matters because God wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to have a loving relationship with you. Notice how many times in those same verses we looked at that it, this place that God's going to choose, that's where his name, he's going to put his name there. And in the ancient world, your name was who you are. It's your character God puts his name there. He dwells there. And notice, uh, a lot of those same verses we just looked at, when the people go to worship and they make their offerings and they make their sacrifices in this place, repeatedly the text tells us they do this before him, in his presence. They eat before him. They rejoice before him. And this is why the idolatrous places of worship and the names of those other gods must be destroyed. Because you can't morph Yahweh, the God whose name means I am who I am. I can't be compared with other gods or anything else in all creation. You can't take that God and turn him into an object that you can manipulate to get what you want. You can't make him like all the other gods and attack his person and his name. And, and here's where we need to be honest. Do we want a way of worship and spirituality that is about love, or do we want to be in control? Perhaps no one has put this better than C.S. Lewis, where he writes about the kind of spirituality that the vast majority are after. He writes, an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads? Better still. A formless life force surging through us? A vast power which we can tap? Best of all. But God himself, alive, 
pulling at the other end of the cord, approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband, that is quite another matter. Let me add, too, that this, I don't think this is just a danger for those who are outside of the church or those who don't profess orthodox Christianity. Within conservative Bible-believing circles, it is possible for people to take what God has revealed and not study it and give themselves to it because they want to know God personally and they want to know His love and they want to be transformed, but because through that information, somehow they can have control. And I'll speak personally for a minute from my own experience from times in grad school, and I think many of my friends who went through seminary with me would agree that at times as we were pursuing our Master of Divinity degrees, to put it in a really cliche way, we were more interested in mastering divinity than being mastered by divinity. We were more interested, I was more interested at time in having the perfect system that could explain everything and knowing all the answers and being right than knowing God and being changed by Him. See, the way of true worship is a way of a love relationship with God, loving a person. And if you are here this morning and you have ever been in a relationship of love with another person, perhaps a friend or someone in your family or a husband or a wife, you know that love involves losing control. It involves vulnerability. It involves receptivity and openness to this other person, openness to this person changing you, influencing you, knowing this person for who they are and not for who you want them to be. I was thinking, obviously, about my own marriage to Aaron for these past 15 years. And, you know, as I, as I think about it, I have been changed by her, and she has been changed by me. If we weren't together these last 15 years, I would not be the same person. It's not like you could just subtract Aaron out and I would still be the same. We have changed each other, and the more you know us, the more that you know what I'm talking about, perhaps, and some of you, you know, you know the weird humor that we share with each other, or the way that we endlessly quote movies or shows, or uh, what I call Aaronisms, which are really hard to explain, but it's those things where I say something, and it's like clearly something that Aaron would say, and that just came out of my mouth. And then there are, there are new abilities and knowledge, like Aaron's ability to discern the difference between John Coltrane's saxophone sound and Dexter Gordon's saxophone sound. They're jazz musicians. There are new loves. Aaron never played soccer, you know, growing up, and yet she will watch hours and hours and hours of Premier League soccer and love every minute of it. We have molded and shaped each other, and we've not been in control. The relationship has changed us. And if that's true on a human level, what do you think it would mean to worship the one true God? Like, do you think it would even be possible to have a personal relationship with God where you come fixed in your beliefs, fixed in your values, and fixed in your, in your opinions? Could that even be possible? You can know the one true God, and you can love Him, and you can be in that vulnerable relationship depending on Him, trusting in Him, or you can be in control. But you can't have both. This is the way of true 
worship. And it's a way that we see in this passage that is so unlike worship, ancient and modern, because it's not about getting stuff. It's about grace. It's about responding to the God who has loved you, who has redeemed you, who has given you so much. It's about knowing Him, knowing His love and rejoicing in Him. Let me talk now just very briefly about some of the ways that this is meant to change us. As I said, I'm going to be much more brief here. This way is meant to transform how we experience God's gifts and generosity. You probably notice as, as the passage is being read, there's a number of instructions about slaughtering an animal and eating meat. Meat was a delicacy. It was a special meal. And these instructions show us, first of all, in in the way that they're they're communicated, that God wants his people to enjoy good things. He wants them to enjoy blessings that he has given them. But he wants them to do it in a way that fosters their relationship with him. So if you look at verses 17 and 18, if, if, if this is a sacrifice or an offering... It must be enjoyed in the place that the Lord chooses, in His presence. Whether or not it's um, an offering or it's not an offering, the blood has to be poured out. It's either poured out on the ground, verse 16, if it's a non-sacrificial slaughter, or verse 27, it's poured out on the altar if it's a sacrificial slaughter. Because, as numerous Old Testament texts state, and even as we see in this passage, the life is in the blood. There is a connection that the Israelites knew and the ancient people knew between blood and life. And life belongs to God the Creator, and life is sacred. And so pouring out the blood is an acknowledgement of that reality. You know, this week, as we were eating pulled pork tacos, I was thinking about the reality that we don't have to think about ever because I've never slaughtered an animal and I have no idea what goes into that, but that there's a way of receiving even a meal where I acknowledge I am enjoying something, but something has lost its life that I can partake of this. And I don't own life. God owns life. It changes the way you eat pork tacos, right? Like, and as you're at the altar and you're, and you're confessing your sins or you're bringing your offerings and you're recognizing that something gave its life so that I could have fellowship with God. It transforms the way you relate to God's creation, to animals, to this world, to gifts of all kinds. It also transforms the way that we relate to other people. We read in verse 12, look at verse 12 with me, that when the people come into the land and they're going to go to the place that God chooses to bring their offerings and their sacrifices, verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. And again, if you look at verses 18 and 19, similarly, when the people come to bring their offerings to eat before the Lord, it's the whole community of Israel that is to participate. Verse 19 specifies, don't forget the Levite. The tribe of Levi, if you don't know or maybe you, maybe you remember, they, they were the tribe that didn't inherit land. And so they were dependent on the other tribes so that they could enjoy rich food and rejoice with all God's people. 
Worship is meant to transform the way we relate to others. We're going to see this ongoing in Deuteronomy. In chapter 14, Deuteronomy mentions other vulnerable groups like widows, orphans, resident aliens, and how they are to be included in Israel's life. And I'm going to quote this somewhat lengthy but just beautiful quote from Chris Wright, Old Testament scholar, who says this, It was not enough to insist that the poor and aliens be treated with judicial equality in court or to provide charitable welfare handouts to them. They must be included in the very heart of Israel's life, the joyful worship and feasting in the presence of God. And in this way, Israel would add yet another dimension to the multiple ways in which their national life was intended to imitate and mirror what Yahweh was like and what he had done. For did not Yahweh himself defend the cause of the widow? Did not Yahweh also love the aliens, feeding and clothing them? No worship that claims to love God but excludes those whom God loves can be acceptable to God. Worshiping and knowing God is meant to transform you. How we experience his gifts, how we relate to the world, how we relate to other people. What are we to do with this? I think probably there's already some connections that we're making, but, but how does this connect to our lives? How do we participate in this worship? It's no longer a place. It's a person. When King Solomon dele- dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, he acknowledges that though the temple is the place at that time where God puts his name and where he dwells, Solomon says, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And yet the wonder and the mystery of Jesus is that Colossians 1, in him all the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. God came into our world and took on flesh that he might make himself known. Jesus God says of Jesus, this is my son, this is the chosen one. At his baptism, when he comes out of the water, he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, he's on the mountain with Peter and James and John, and for a moment they see him in his glory, and then they hear the voice of God say, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. But in the most public way, Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has said, this is my son. This is the chosen one. So Peter, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he says these words to those who are standing by listening, wondering what's going on. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Paul, in Acts 26, 26, he's speaking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah to these rulers, to Festus and King Agrippa. And he says to them boldly, what I'm saying to you is true and reasonable. 
The king is familiar with these things. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because this was not done in a corner. God has shown us, he has declared to the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus that Jesus is the one whom all the scriptures pointed to, that Jesus is the place that we come to worship God. Jesus is the person through whom we come to know God's love and worship him. And the call to each of us this morning is really quite simple. It is to relinquish control. Because our idols and the things that we worship instead of Jesus, we often do because we want to control. And the call is to give up control and turn to Jesus, to seek Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to let his love transform you and challenge you and shape you that you might know the way of love. And the beautiful thing that we see as we look at the New Testament, I'll just give a few examples, but as you look at the New Testament, the fruit that Deuteronomy talks about is happening all over the place because you see people who formerly would not associate with each other, who hated each other, who are now a part of the same church, eating at the same table, participating in the same life of community with one another, Jews and Gentiles. You see people of different races and classes and divisions of, you know, male and female and, and, you know, the educated and the uneducated. And you see that in Christ there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free, uneducated, uneducated, cultured, unsophisticated, but in Christ We come to experience community and unity and sharing with one another through him. This week, um, if you're in community groups, you're going to watch a short video about this ministry, The Bridge, which was already mentioned earlier in our service. And one of the videos, I I watched them both. If you're not in a community group, you should go on Trinity's YouTube page and you should watch them. Uh, But one of the videos is of a guy named Jeff who serves as a deacon at The Bridge And in his video, he shares about how he first came to the bridge and people were telling him that they loved him and and all this stuff. And he was skeptical of it. Like, you don't know me. Like, how, how can you say you love me? But over time, he began to see this love and he began to experience this love and he became changed by it. And now he's a deacon. He's someone who serves in the leadership of this ministry. And he talks about how this ministry provides support to people, any support that they need, and connects them to churches. And as I was listening to this video, I was reminded of this very weird thing that Jeff and I are very different, and our backgrounds are very different. And to some extent, I would guess some of our struggles are, are different. And yet, I share with this man in Christ, and he is my brother. This morning as we are gathered here and as we're going to partake of this table in a few moments' time, we're going to be doing this thing with one another and we're going to be be coming to Jesus together with churches all over the world rejoicing and celebrating in God's Son. And it it is this worship that as we give ourselves to God who gave himself for us that we come to know his love that we come to be changed and transformed.